0: I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 3rd, 2013. Coming up, octopus, the most mysterious creature in the sea. And we talk with biographer Bernie Carlson about Nikola Tesla's mental method of invention, Colorado experiments, and modern mystique. We begin with a look
1: at some of the recent news in science. In the famous words from Monty Python, Comet Ison is not quite dead yet. Maybe. Last week on Thanksgiving Day, the comet passed through perihelion, the closest point of its orbit to the Sun. And there was lots of speculation about whether Comet Ison would survive the extremely close passage to the Sun. How close was it to the surface of the Sun? Less than the diameter of the Sun itself. Initial observations indicated that nothing survived, that ISON broke up and or evaporated due to the sun's intense gravity and heat. Subsequent data did show that something survived. A dusty ghost, possibly some small fragment of the nucleus, or maybe just bits of rubble. Follow-up observations will continue to characterize exactly what is left. One key set of observations will be from the Hubble Space Telescope, but those observations won't happen until another couple weeks when Comet ISON is far enough from the sun to be safe for Hubble to observe it. You can find out lots more details about Comet ISON and observations of it on the Comet ISON Observing Campaign website at www.isoncampaign.org. For nearly a century, the term
0: Neanderthal has been hurled as an insult to suggest that someone is inclined toward low intelligence, brute force, and old-fashioned ideas. After all, by 30,000 years ago, Neanderthals were basically extinct while we marched into modern times. Now, archaeologists from CU Denver have new evidence that blurs the bragging rights between Neanderthals and us modern humans. The CU evidence involves an area in northwest Italy where Neanderthals kept house over 30,000 years ago. And while those ancient cave homes didn't have a big screen TV in the family room or an espresso machine on the kitchen counter, for their, their times, Neanderthal homes seemed to have kept up quite well with the homes of modern humans who lived in the same distant areas. For instance, 30,000 years ago, Neanderthals tended together around round a fire in one area— make stone tools, and butcher animals in another. And they had a special area for mixing ochre pigments. CU Denver anthropologist Julian Real Salvatore headed up the study. He said that since the ability to organize space in a domestic fashion has been one of the reasons that scientists have called early modern humans more advanced than Neanderthals, it's time to acknowledge that Neanderthals were, for their times, also sophisticated. Today's study
1: appeared in the Canadian Journal of Archaeology. And in the science calendar, next week on December 10th, you have two cafe scientifics to choose from. The Boulder Cafe Sci hosts Larry Baggett, professor emeritus from the Department of Mathematics at the University of Colorado Boulder. Dr. Baggett will talk about In the Dark on the Sunny Side. It's a memoir of a young American boy who accidentally blinded himself and grew up to be an internationally well-known expert on harmonic analysis and wavelet theory. The Boulder Café Sci takes place at the Outlook Hotel on the 28th Street Frontage Road. That is next Tuesday, December 10th. Refreshments begin at 5.30 p.m., and a short talk starts at 6 o'clock, followed by a question-and-answer period. For more information, visit the webpage at www.cafessiboulder.org. Also on next Tuesday is the Denver Café Sci, which will host Ross Kimmage of the CU Medical School Division of Oncology. Dr. Kimmage's presentation is titled... How to Hit a Moving Target, Strategies for Dealing with Advanced Cancer. He will review some of the most out-of-the-box tricks we are now using to keep advanced cancer under control, the challenges we face in terms of using and combining new drugs, plus how we are combining drugs and other treatment modalities, including the latest immune stimulation approaches. That presentation will be on December 10th, starting at 6.30 at the Wincoop Brewing Company in the Mercantile Room. For more information, visit their webpage at CafeSciColorado.org.
0: Nikola Tesla is one of the iconic figures of the early electrical age. He invented AC motor technology still used today and also polyphase AC power. He was a brilliant demonstrator whose images of flowers of lightning from his inventions and portraits of his friend Mark Twain illuminated by his fluorescent bulbs still are well known. He worked with and fought with the mighty J.P. Morgan and with the wireless great Marconi. He is a figure of mystery today who many believe presaged infinite and free ener- energy for everyone on Earth and death rays. Here to speak with us about Tesla is W. Bernard Carlson. Professor Carlson teaches at the University of Virginia. He's an expert on the role of technology and innovation in American history, especially in the formation of industries from the Civil War to World War I. Welcome to How on Earth, Dr. Carlson.
2: Well, it's great to be here and to talk to folks out in Colorado.
0: We'd like, you know, we'd like to learn about three aspects of Tesla that you discuss in your new book, uh, Tesla Inventor of the Electrical Age, his unusual ability to imagine and work on detailed problems for years in his head, his work in Colorado and the modern mystique surrounding Tesla. But first, what do we owe Tesla?
2: We owe Tesla a great deal. He was the inventor of two disruptive technologies uh, that you mentioned a moment ago. He worked first and foremost on alternating current. Uh, before Tesla, there were only systems that delivered electric light, and after Tesla, there were systems that we now know can deliver both electric light and power. And we were able to use power in a variety of applications thanks to his invention of the first practical alternating current motor. Tesla also was a rival with Marconi and worked very hard on what we now call radio. His vision for, Tesla's vision for radio was not necessarily for communications, but rather to send power throughout the earth. And so he worked on two major technologies that both underlie the, the way we use electricity and the way we have electronics today.
0: You know, a main theme of your book is how Tesla mentally worked on problems and can you tell the tell us uh, how he did that uh, its origins in his childhood and why this was both a boon and a weakness for him
2: one of the things that I, you make a decision about when you're a biographer is very early on, are you going to sort of structure the the story and the analysis around genius or around um, method? And I'm a method sort of guy, and so in all of my work on inventors, I've fo- always focused on trying to understand what they do every day when they, they wake up, they go to the laboratory, they have that first cup of coffee, and they, they start doing things. Well, what are all those things that they do? And what I discovered with Tesla is, is, this, is Tesla um, spent a lot of time thinking and visualizing inventions. In other words, that was really the, say, the 80 or 90 percent of the work that he was doing, as opposed to the hands-on tinkering that was so much of uh, his rival Thomas Edison's activities. And Tesla came to this visualization skill as as a young as a young fellow, as a, as a nine, ten, maybe eleven-year-old. He was. Um, Plagued as, a, as a child by terrible nightmares and very vivid visions and he realized right in his, that pre-adolescent stage that rather than being overwhelmed by those visions he could learn to control them and in fact um, direct his dreams and direct his visions um, so he could go on interesting journeys and have have a very active um, imaginative life. And by the time he was 18 or 19, that is to say, kind of just before he went off to study engineering at college, he had developed the ability not only to go on sort of fantastic um, journeys, but to also visualize new inventions and new technology. Modern psychologists would say that what he has is what's called an eidetic memory. That is to say that he has this sort of ability, and, and it, is, it is something that psychologists have studied, where he would see things in three dimensions basically at eye level and sort of at arm's length. So if you imagine kind of a cube out there at the end of your, at the end of your arm, that's, that's where he would see these inventions and he could work them through and he always emphasized uh that whatever he visualized there he could he could modify he could change he could test so that when he actually built the invention itself the 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 prototype it would work first time every time now that's that's pushing it a little too far because oftentimes he overlooked what kind of materials he needed or certain subtleties in terms of the invention. But he is um, much, you know, he is one of the great examples of what we would call a theoretical inventor. Well,
0: you know, and uh, this, his visions, his eidetic memory, and his ability to work in detail over things for years is just fascinating reading. Now, he came to Colorado to work on wireless power transmission And this was a great moment of expectation for him. And if I might say so, the beginning also I I read of the unraveling of his immense plans for worldwide transmission of power and indeed uh, really his career. And I guess the problem of Colorado resides in how he approached problems. Tell tell us about his experience in in Colorado and, and why ultimately it was flawed.
2: Tesla um, probably was at the height of his powers, as you say, when he got to Colorado in May of 1899, and he stayed there until January of the following year, January 1900. And while he was there, he wanted to test out the and and fully perfect the wireless power system that he had been thinking about since about 1890, 1891. And his vision was is is, is that he would basically send power not. Not through the air, but actually through the ground, that he would pump oscillating electric currents into the ground underneath his transmitter, and then they would be picked up uh, anywhere in the world um, by a very similar sort of receiver. And when he was in Colorado, he witnessed a terrific thunderstorm that moved off the Rockies. Um, Uh, west of Colorado Springs, over across the town of Colorado Springs, and then out east over over the prairie. And as he watched that storm and he had electrical devices set up, he realized that he was picking up signals as the storm got further and further away, and it convinced Tesla that he would be able to send power through the Earth um, at any distance, in fact, all the way around the world, um, with minimal losses. And on the basis of the, those sort of observations that he made of these, the, that first, and then some other terrific lightning storms in Colorado Springs, he was absolutely convinced that this that his entire system would work. And in fact, he went on to kind of design the system without any real rigorous demonstrations or tests. And in the way philosophers would talk about this, is is this is what makes science science is that is, 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 is scientists always try to disconfirm their hypotheses. That is to say, they try to prove them wrong. And in, in the world of inventors, what this means is, is an inventor builds a device and then he torture tests it. In other words, he runs it till the thing falls apart. And then, the, based on the way it falls apart, he builds the next one, and he improves upon that. Well, Tesla never ran his system to the point where he it fell apart, and he began to de- de- generate disconfirmatory evidence. He always found or concentrated on the fact that if he could find confirmatory evidence, that is to say positive proof that what he had imagined in his mind was going to work, then he felt he was on the right track. And so the tragedy of Colorado is is, 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 is that he was measuring real stuff, but— he was, he was interpreting it in the wrong way.
0: Well, Dr. Carlson, it's an utterly fascinating book, a fascinating figure. I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, in, in just a word or two, can you tell us, is his modern mystique unfounded, in, in just a moment or two?
2: No, his, his, his modern mystique is, is not unfounded. And I think what I, I find right now is this, is that we live in an age where We're not sure about the success of of capitalism and of marketplaces and of big corporations and of science. And so Tesla is very popular right now because he sort of promises an alternative path forward where we can enjoy new technology based on our intuition and our our most profound wishes.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Carlson, a professor at the University of Virginia and expert on Tesla.
2: My pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for having me on your show.
1: You are listening to How on Earth the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker, and with us today is Shelley Schlender to present our second feature and to explain why we played that particular song just a moment ago.
3: Well, and thanks, Joel. And yes, I'm sure an octopus's garden might be well worth the visit. If you doubt that the octopus may be the most mysterious creature in the sea, consider this: an octopus has three hearts, eight arms camouflaging skin, and some of them can figure out ways to do things that many humans can't, such as getting the lid off a childproof bottle. You can learn about octopuses this Thursday, when Longmont resident Katherine Harmon Courage will speak about her new book, Octopus, at the Boulder Bookstore. Here to tell us more is Catherine Harmon Courage, and let's begin with one of my favorite stories from this wonderful book that you've written about the octopus that didn't like the bad-tasting shrimp in its aquarium.
4: Right, exactly. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, yes, when I was researching the book, um, I spoke with one researcher who had been keeping octopuses for for years and years, and she would go in, and they would interact with her each morning, and she would feed them this frozen shrimp. But she had been getting a feeling that they didn't like shrimp if it was kind of stale. You know, we don't like freezer-burned food. Why should an octopus? So she went along her little line of octopus tanks, feeding them one at a time. The first one she fed was this big old female. And so she'd fed her, and she moved along. She fed maybe nine other octopuses, and she came back to the beginning of the line to check on this one octopus. She thought, you know, well, let's see if she's taken this food, even though I know it's not exactly going to be to their taste. And so this, this big female octopus was waiting for her, who seemed to be watching her at the front of the tank. And she didn't see the food. The octopus, keeping her eyes locked into the scientist's, slowly crept back to the back corner of the tank where there was the water output and dramatically shot this stale food down through the drain it said you know almost to say i am not eating this and i want you to see that this is not to my taste and all
3: the while this big octopus was watching her with its big eyes kind of like do you get it do exactly,
4: you get it exactly exactly so that
3: octopus was acting like a puppy.
4: Exactly, or possibly even smarter than a dog, Um, which is just incredible because from what we know, octopuses with themselves are not social like dogs are, and we certainly haven't been keeping and training them and breeding them to interact with us. So why is this kind of lonesome sea creature seeming to communicate with us this way?
3: There are all kinds of mysteries about the octopus, starting with that one. Um, Not only is it not a social creature in its life, but it doesn't even get the nurturing that most of us think of that lead to social behavior. It's not raised like a puppy. Mm -hmm. You, You describe how the parents are very devoted to the eggs.
4: Right, exactly. Well, the female, after she'll... She'll lay her eggs, and there can be thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of these tiny little eggs the size of a grain of rice. And the female really painstakingly weaves them together and we usually attach them to the inside of her den. And she will hardly eat or sleep or rest while these eggs are maturing for sometimes months at a time. And she'll clean them and make sure that algae doesn't grow on them. But then, once they hatch, she kind of gives them a little push off into the ocean, and then she kind of fades away, and she never really interacts with her her offspring.
3: And so here are these creatures that live on their own, and yet they can interact with us in this amazing way. Once we observe them, it really is amazing. Uh, have you ever heard of an octopus that was like saved somebody, like a dog would?
4: Well, not individually, and not that we can um, really reconcile with science. There is, however, this legend in Italy of a, a giant octopus that saved this small coastal town called Talaro. I got to visit it. There was this old, old church on the bay, and at the top of the church was an old bell tower. And legend has it that the villagers, you know, centuries ago, the villagers were off having a big festival, and little did they know these invaders were approaching by sea to attack the town. But apparently this one benevolent, benevolent, octopus out in the sea saw this happening and kind of climbed and reached a long arm and rang the tower bell, the church tower bell, and alerted the the town so it could defend itself. So,
3: (laughs) Well, good for that octopus, even if that is a legend. Well, you know, let's get back to the science of it. I I love the stories, and behind all of this, that's also fascinating that there really is a lot of science about this creature that's basically just a clan that figured out how to move without a shell. (laughs)
4: Exactly. It's really pretty incredible.
3: How ancient are octopus? Are they before or after dinosaurs?
4: They are before. They evolved. It's hard to find an octopus fossil because since they don't have bones, they don't fossilize very well. But we've found some that are hundreds of millions of years old. So, you know, before T. rex was terrorizing the land, octopuses were hunting quietly under the ocean.
3: And they were hunting without a skeleton. Do octopuses predate skeletons in animals?
4: They do somewhat. At least their ancestors do. They evolved, you know, early invertebrates, and um, their ancestors, and still some of their relatives today, do have shells that they can hide inside. But octopuses and squid and cuttlefish kind of moved away from that side, and we think that's one of the reasons they became so smart.
3: <laughs> They're smart in terms of learning things, because they can learn how to open a bottle or how to train their, tr- their aquarium handlers to give them fresh <laughs> shrimp. But they also do some things just by instinct that are fascinating, like they can camouflage themselves Mm -hmm. in the blink of an eye.
4: Yep, that's one of the most fascinating things we're still trying to figure out as humans, how they're able to do this. There's a popular YouTube video of an octopus that looks... For all we can tell, like kelp, you could never imagine how one would distinguish it from a plant on a rock. Um, and then when the, the human filmer gets up close and startles it, this octopus kind of flashes to life, becomes this big white octopus and tries to swim away from what it thinks might be an attacker. But we don't know how they figure out how to match their color and their texture and even their luminosity to their environments.
3: We don't know how they do that, but it's not a calculated learned behavior the way that opening a bottle might be. It it has more mm-hmm. to do with their instinct and their desire. Their body readily makes this happen.
4: Right, exactly. You know, young octopuses can start camouflaging from a very, very young age, and it is just, you know, an, an ingrained behavior that they have.
3: Speaking of ingrained behaviors and learning and instinct where the heck is their brain?
4: (laughs) That's a good question. Well, it's kind of everywhere. One researcher I spoke to compared it to the Internet. We're kind of stuck with our own individual CPU computer brains, and we have this one kind of clunky desktop model at the top of our bodies. But the octopus is kind of like the Internet. It has two-thirds of its neurons are scattered into its arms, and so that allows its arms to act independently, kind of figure out problems independently, and even communicate among each other without having to bother the central brain. So it's pretty, pretty fascinating and really hard for us to wrap our clunky little minds around.
3: <laughs> yes, it, it, it's fascinating all the way through, including that story of the researcher who wanted the octopus to stay in its tank. <laughs>
4: Right, which is always a challenge, and another reason, one reason they don't make very good pets is they're always trying to escape. So this one researcher was studying this tank of octopuses, and she noticed another tank over her shoulder. This one octopus seemed to be pushing up on its lid, and she, kind of instinctively, not thinking about it, kind of you know, batted down on the lid, and said, you know, get back in there, don't do that. And so the octopus, kind of startled, swam to the back corner and didn't try it again. Well. This researcher came back the next day to study the octopus that she was looking at, it, and little did, little did she know behind her corner, behind her shoulder, the octopus was once again lifting up the edge of its tank and squirted her right at short range. So the octopus definitely remembered her.
3: Revenge from the octopus. Exactly. Well, I'm Shelley Schlender, and our guest has been Catherine Harmon-Courage, author of Octopus, the Most Mysterious Creature in the Sea. Catherine will speak about her new book this Thursday at 7.30 at the Boulder Bookstore.
1: that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bartell. And this week's show was produced
0: and engineered by Joel Parker. Thank you, Joel.
1: Thank you, Jim. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from The Beatles and David Bowie. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org
0: to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
1: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Jim Pullen.